Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. The studies of adverse childhood experiences looking mostly at physical and sexual abuse, neglect, having a family member with substance use disorder, having a divorce between your parents. And the first study that looked at ACEs was mostly middle-class folks living in the San Diego area. And they were shocked to find that middle-aged adults who had an ACE score of one or higher then had this risk of chronic disease that showed up in middle age. And since that was initially published, we now know that there's about 44 plus chronic diseases that can be attributed to or associated with an elevated A score. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable, everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, hello, my Bettys, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I'm welcoming back my friend and colleague, Dr. Sarah Saul Gottfried. She's a physician, a researcher, author, and educator. Dr. Sarah graduated from Harvard Medical School and MIT and completed her residency at UCSF, but is more likely to prescribe a continuous glucose monitor and personalized nutrition plan than the latest pharmaceutical, which is why I love her. Dr. Zoll is a global keynote speaker and the author of four New York Times bestselling books about hormones, nutrition, and health. Her latest book, which is what we're talking about today, is called The Autoimmune Cure. She is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Science at Thomas Jefferson University and the Director of Precision Medicine at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. She helps takes care of executives and professional athletes, and her focus is at the interface of mental and physical health, N of one trial design, personalized molecular profiling, the use of wearables, and how to leverage those tools to improve health outcomes. All right, so we are talking all about autoimmunity today with the context of trauma and how trauma can be, or autoimmunity rather, can be the ultimate expression of trauma. So we define and expand on the definition, uh, the traditional definition of trauma. We talk about how trauma and hormones may be the root cause of autoimmunity. We talk about how women experience trauma differently than men, both in terms of type, in terms of trauma timing, and in terms of our response to trauma. And Sarah and I also share some of our personal experiences, our, both our ACE scores, which you're going to learn what that is in our conversation, as well as 
therapeutic modalities that both of us have tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked for both of us, for our friends and our and our surrounding colleagues as well. This is a great conversation for all women everywhere and for all the men who love them. Autoimmunity is not just a female disease, but it does affect women more than it does men. We talk about rheumatoid factor. We talk about blood work that you can do. We talk about ways that you can think about healing some of the residue that is living in your system. And of course, all this is detailed in her new book, The Autoimmune Cure, which is available at all good retailers. Please enjoy my enriching conversation with Dr. Sarah Saul Gottfried. Muscle relief in a box. That is what the new Bond Charge Cold and Heat Therapy Massage Gun is. It is a massage gun with adjustable intensity levels and five massage attachments, so you can tailor your massage to any area of the body. Overlay the massage with heat to gently warm and relax the muscles, enhance blood circulation, and soothe muscle stiffness, or choose a cold setting to help alleviate discomfort and acute inflammation following an injury. Whether you're an athlete looking to recover from intense workouts, a muscle mommy looking for some relief from the delayed onset muscle soreness, or just looking for relief from everyday muscle tension, this is your new best friend. I also bring this to my kids' soccer games so they can use it immediately afterwards. I love this thing. Head over to bondcharge.com forward slash better and use discount code better at checkout for a 15% discount. Essential fatty acids create better skin, hair, and nails, repair age-related damage to cells, and activate pathways that regulate sleep and mood. Fatty 15 is a different kind of essential fatty acid that helps to reverse 36 clinically relevant and age-associated changes at the cellular level, effectively protecting your cells and you against age-related breakdown. It is a stable nutrient that reduces oxidative damage and acts like an armor for your cells, keeping them young and healthy. It helps with your liver, joint health, heart health, immune health, and it activates longevity pathways like AMP kinase for smoother functioning joints, deeper sleep, healthier hair, skin, and nails. Fatty 15 is on a mission to replenish your C15 levels and restore your long-term health. You can get an additional 15% off of their 90-day subscription starter kit if you go to fatty15.com slash better and use code better at checkout. That's F-A-T-T-Y, the numbers 15.com forward slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. All right, let's get started, my friend. Dr. Sarah Gottfried, welcome back to the show. I'm thrilled to welcome you here again. Delighted to be with you, as always. We are talking about your new book, The Autoimmune Cure, Healing Trauma and Other Triggers That Have Turned Your Body Against You. I will say as an overall, I've read the book. Thank you so much for the advanced copy. I've read through it, made 13 pages of notes as... I do <laughs> a little miss over prepared for, you know, for our conversation. What I, what I really appreciate, there's two things. Well, there's many things, but the two things that really stuck out uh, for me was sort of this delicate, but thorough, uh, aggression, uh, drama and how, uh, and we're, we're going to dive into some of the, uh, some of the nuances in terms of how trauma affects women differently uh, than men in terms of type and duration and all of that. Um, so appreciated your own story. So you, you know, you didn't necessarily go into all of the, all of the details, but I felt, you know, it must have not been, and I just want to start off by saying it must have not been easy 
for you to say things like, I was addicted to toxic stress. I always had a lot of tension. If, if there wasn't a lot of tension or it wasn't high stress, I felt bored. There was always high conflict in my relationships. I really appreciated that because I think when you have an individual such as yourself with the accolades and the success that you've accrued over your career, it can be easy for someone to look at you and say, well, she's got it all, like everything, like she doesn't struggle with anything. There's nothing. So I thought that it was a really uh, full bridge uh, appropriate sharing and appropriate vulnerability as a mechanism for connection for your readers. Because I think so many of us experience trauma and none of us are talking about it. And I, I thought that the way that you did, you know, with your patients, like having the utmost reverence and respect for their stories, as well as yours, I thought was really great. So I just wanted to start um, in that. It was really, really lovely to read. Thank you so much, Stephanie. You know, I feel like often in medicine, as physicians, as doctors, we're, we're taught not to talk about ourselves. We're taught to be kind of this clean mirror for our patients. And I think there's a lot of value to that. But in some ways, it's a very masculine approach to the way that we connect and relate to our clients and patients. Mm-hmm. And so I don't share my story because I think I'm so great or my ego needs it. It's really for the service of trying to normalize a conversation about trauma and toxic stress. And, you know, the the experience that she just described of being addicted to toxic stress and acknowledging that and noticing how it shows up in my relationships and then going through a process of mostly psychedelic-assisted therapy to get to a place where I've cleared a lot of my trauma. And we know from the literature from the randomized trials that that is probably twice as effective as talk therapy for resolving trauma. Now I'm in a place where my relationships do not have that conflict. I feel safe when I am safe. I'm not addicted to toxic stress. Instead, you know, I I really try to fill my days with more contemplative practice, more healing states of consciousness, which I think are really what we all need, especially at this time in our lives. said. So let's talk about trauma. Uh, When I was in school, we defined trauma. It was like the ACE, you know, you give your patients, let's say the uh, childhood uh, experiences, uh, there was a certain or over a certain amount, they had this percentage of developing these types of disease. So let's talk about uh, about this in the book, big T trauma and little T trauma. Maybe we can expand our definition uh, trauma is and how we uh, incorporate that, let's say, uh, into the you know, into our somatic experience. You know, I, I think like you, when I learned about trauma, it was mostly the big T trauma, you know, the Holocaust, a genocide in Armenia, the 9-11 terrorist bombings. We can all agree that those are big T trauma. Like pretty much anyone who goes through those is at risk for developing recurrent symptoms, post-traumatic stress disorder, And now we're at a a place in our lives where we're noticing that we need to be concerned not just about the big T trauma. We need to be thinking about the small T trauma. And that's maybe a relationship that breaks up, a pet that dies, almost getting into an accident. And it's not so much 
what happened to you. Gabor Mate talks about this really beautifully. It's not so much the trauma itself. It's the reaction to the trauma, the way that it lives on in your body, the residue of it, especially with these, the network, you know, you know, I'm going to get nerdy on you here. So like the psycho and, you know, neuroendocrine network and how the residue of trauma, depending on your vulnerability, can affect one or more of those four systems. So for some people, it's post-traumatic stress disorder or even what I see more commonly in my practice is partial PTSD or subthreshold PTSD, where you don't have all of the criteria. You know, it's not like you're a, a veteran from the military who's waking up with nightmares and flashbacks and that sort of thing, but you've got kind of this low level of stress that's in your psychological system. Or it's immune, which is the pattern that I was seeing in my practice with autoimmunity connected to triggers such as trauma. Not everyone with autoimmune disease has trauma as a trigger, but it's a, a certainly a common one. And then the neurological system, you know, I've got so many clients, I imagine you do too, who've got chronically low heart rate variability. They just can't really relax and restore their nervous system the way that we're meant to. And then, the, of course, the endocrine system, you know, the portal that I first walked through when I started writing books, the way that cortisol and the control system for cortisol can become so dysregulated and how that can disrupt so many other hormones, things like oxytocin, estrogen, progesterone, thyroid, testosterone, DHEA. So, yeah, we want to be looking not just at the trauma, is it big T or little t, but the residue of the trauma. Well said. And so let you talk about this idea that autoimmunity might be the ultimate expression of trauma and understanding, you know, of course, autoimmunity or all the different types of autoimmune conditions are them, they themselves going to have sort of their own cluster of symptoms. You know, you have multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis and, you know, all Hashimoto's and all the different types, but you do talk about sort of a through line uh, into this perfect storm. So there's usually like a genetic susceptibility increased intestinal permeability and a trigger, which, which we were talking about. So let's expand a little bit on, on all three of those, if you'd like. So we can talk about the genetic susceptibility, the so-called leaky gut, let's say, and, and what those triggers might be. And then we can talk and we can sort of wade into, you mentioned hormones. And of course, we're going to talk about hormones with you. So we're going to maybe talk about some of the hormones that are related in that aberrant sort of hyper uh, arousal, let's say, of the sympathetic or the, or the autonomic nervous system. You mentioned some of the classic autoimmune diseases, and it might be helpful to talk about the language of this for a moment, because sure. I think some folks get a little confused. And one of the things I write about in the book is that there are the classic autoimmune diseases, like you mentioned, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes. Those are some of the most common ones. And then, and those are when you develop autoimmunity. So you develop this loss of tolerance for your own cells, your own antigens, these factors that are on cells that you can have an immune response to. So there's autoimmunity, and then it can progress if it's unaddressed into autoimmune disease. And then there's the classic autoimmune diseases where you can measure an antibody, such as with 
rheumatoid arthritis, it's rheumatoid factors, such as with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, it's antiperoxidase antibodies or anti-thyroglobulin. And then there's also some non-classical autoimmune diseases where you're still attacking your own tissues, but it may or may not be classified as autoimmune. And these are things I see really commonly, and I imagine you do too, endometriosis, migraines, Mm -hmm. irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome. And some of those, you know, the irritable bowel syndrome, as an example, there are some that have antibodies that have been measured. Same thing with endometriosis. So it doesn't seem to explain the entire story, but it at least explains some of the symptoms. So I think it's helpful just to talk about some of the language of this. And then I didn't come up with this idea of the triad that you need as a root cause to develop autoimmune disease. The the guy who did it is Alessio Fasano, who's an Italian pediatric gastroenterologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he mostly was looking at celiac disease, another classic autoimmune disease. And he found that she needed this triad of, as you described, genetic predisposition together with increased intestinal permeability, so-called leaky gut, and then a trigger. So he found that with celiac, and then he started to look at other autoimmune diseases and found that that was that was part of the loss of tolerance, you know, this difficulty separating what's normal and what's not. And the way I think of this, Stephanie, is that the immune system is really designed to sense trouble. But when you lose tolerance, when you have a trigger and you have this genetic predisposition and you have increased intestinal permeability, it can cause a lot of trouble. The immune system can cause a lot of trouble. And that's what we see with autoimmune disease. So yeah, we can go a little deeper into those categories, the genetic predisposition is better defined with celiac and with some other conditions, but it's it's the genetic predisposition and then the increased intestinal permeability. And frankly, I'm at a point now where if I've if I have a client who doesn't have leaky gut, who doesn't have increased intestinal permeability, I'm fascinated because almost everybody does. I take care of the Philadelphia 76ers. Because of their training load, they have increased intestinal permeability, and it leads to more inflammation. It leads to the immune system, 70% of which is below the, the layer of the gut lining. It leads to the immune system getting overactivated. And then it, it leads to these reactions. You know, some people notice them as food intolerances, but it, when the immune system gets overactivated and then you have a trigger on top of that, which could be toxic stress, or it could be making it through the pandemic, or maybe an infection with COVID. I just had a patient before we started this morning who's got long COVID. And we're thinking that long COVID, at least in some cases, is an autoimmune reaction. So the trigger can really vary. It could be an infection, it could be toxic stress. But especially when you look at things like fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, Having toxic stress as a trigger is very common. Having some sort of traumatic response. And I like to use toxic stress because I've been talking about it for so long. And 
you know, I take care of both men and women, but I especially help women who've got this toxic stress that kind of lives on in their system, this residue. And no matter what they do, you know, they start a meditation practice, a yoga practice, they take phosphatidylserine, they're taking their favorite adaptogen, rhodiola, whatever it is, and they still find, I've got this vulnerability, Dr. Sarah, that I'm trying to address. Why is it that I can't get this out of my system? Why is it part of my architecture? How do I change the way that I respond to stress? And that's where we want to start talking about some novel solutions, but we're probably not there yet. So I'll just kind of headline that and we'll get to it a little later. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to we're going to talk about those novel solutions because I, you know, the whole your whole book was such a it was a comprehensive book insofar as your what we're trying to do is we're going to we're trying to ask more questions. Right now I think we have more questions than we have answers, but I think your book actually provides a lot more answers than maybe we have seen up in recent years. And with the gut specifically, I I think that one of the things I always try to remember, I mean, not try to remember, but maybe I'm just fascinated, but it's still technically, you know, the lumen of the gut is still technically outside the body, right? So it's always fascinating to me when we start to see intestinal permeability, it's like, what is causing something to allow the outside of the body to allow potential pathogens, viruses, bacteria, fungi, whatever, to invade and to and to pass through that, what should be a very tightly managed, sort of like a bouncer, if you will. And you, and you talk about the book, in the book, you say something like, you know, the leaky, you know, this leaky gut is almost like it's the, the junctions go from like being a bouncer, like not letting anybody in to more of like a provocateur, you know, it's like, come on in everyone, like <laughs> it's warm inside, you know, come on in. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that in the context of stress hormones. I think generally, if you just look in the online space, stress is something that we want to avoid at all costs. Of course, we know that that's not necessarily true. There's eustress and there's distress. What we are talking about specifically here is, as you mentioned, the toxic stress, that chronic, unrelenting, subclinical, low-grade stress that has a very long delta that has been sort of, you know, attacking or pushing up at the gates, if you will, of the body's defense systems for a long time. Can you walk us through the pervasive, we'll say, what that what that chem or what that hormonal cascade looks like? So we have and, and how women are maybe more uniquely sensitive to that than men are. So the the main biochemical cocktail that connects toxic stress to increased intestinal permeability is cortisol-releasing hormone. So when you think about the control system for your stress hormones, you know, what happens is your your limbic system, typically your amygdala, is searching the horizon for threat. We know that women are especially keen to do this. We're wired to do it. So we're searching the horizon for threat. When we see a threat, whether that's a recent email or it's a a lion and her cubs, that then sends the signal to the hypothalamus to release cortisol-releasing hormone. And then that goes to the pituitary to release ACTH, adrenocorticotropin hormone. Yeah. And then that ACTH from the pituitary then goes to the adrenals and gets you to release cortisol. So that's the process and when you look at these individual hormones, it seems to be the CRH that 
pokes the holes directly in the gut. So cortisol might also play a role, and certainly there's some other factors in the gut that cortisol is affecting, but it seems to be the CRH that has this primary effect in terms of increasing intestinal permeability. So that's the problem with toxic stress. You also asked about some of the sex and gender differences, which I want to get into. Yeah, But I, I also feel like I should insert here that when we do research, and that's one of the things I do at Thomas Jefferson University, when we do research and we're trying to create an animal model of leaky gut, the thing that's the most effective is not actually stress, it's alcohol. So alcohol is another factor that leads to leaky gut, that leads to increased intestinal permeability. In fact, it's the most reliable way to induce leaky gut in an animal model. So it's important to mention that. I mean, there's other things too, like glyphosate, although I would say the data on glyphosate is not quite as well-established as it is with alcohol. So then there's some sex and gender differences too. We know, for instance, that women are exposed to different types of trauma than men are. This is really well established in childhood through the studies of adverse childhood experiences. Call adverse childhood experiences ACEs. And there's a, you know, there's a, a well-validated questionnaire that you can fill out to see what your ACE score is. This is looking mostly at physical and sexual abuse, neglect, having a family member with substance use disorder, having a divorce between your parents. There's some traumatic experiences that are not measured by the ACE, such as bullying. So it's not comprehensive, but it's really the best that we have. And the first study that looked at ACEs was done by the Centers for Disease Control in partnership with Geyser Permanente. And they looked at mostly middle-class folks living in the San Diego area. And they were shocked to find that middle-aged adults who had an ACE score of one or higher then had this risk of chronic disease that showed up in middle age. And since that was initially published, we now know that there's about 44 plus chronic diseases that can be attributed to or associated with an elevated ACE score. So when we look at sex differences, we know that women have higher rates of trauma overall compared to men, and the types of trauma are different. So women tend to have much more sexual trauma. So sexual molestation as children, also rape. Men, boys tend to have more physical abuse, although that, you know, I'm generalizing here. There's, and I'm also, you know, a lot of the research is binary. And I just want to acknowledge that we are finally in a place where we understand the fluidity of gender. And I want to be really inclusive when we talk about bodies. You know, there's those that are assigned female at birth, there are those that are assigned male at birth. And we're talking about this construction of men versus women, which is in many ways an artificial construction. So with that in mind, let me ask you, do you know what your A score is? I do. Yeah, it's five. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is elevated, my dear, as you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So what do you know about that in terms of risk of chronic disease? I mean, I know how you live your life. You live your life in a way that is really aimed at reducing your risk of chronic disease, but how do you manage that? Well, <laughs> we're going to get into it, but one of the things that's been, so I do all of the things that, that, you know, the nutrition and the exercise, I'm very conscious about my HRV, which is just chronically low. I, I do, I, there's still some work, there's still unraveling some residue that I still have to clean up in terms of my, in my pine system, we'll say in my, in my nervous system. What's been most helpful for me is connecting to being in nature. So being outside, sometimes when I'm feeling overwhelmed or I feel things get stuck and we'll talk about energies, but I get stuck, I get verklempt, if you will, uh, in my throat and in my heart. So throat chakra, heart chakra, they always feel like there's like a brick or some like a, it's almost like a boa constrictor or something just like squeezing the life energy out of those areas. And I've spoken about this on the podcast before. I've tried talk therapy, I think, and this is no disrespect to, to the, the therapists that I've had. Sometimes I felt like I overwhelmed them. <laughs> like I felt like they felt overwhelmed for me. And it was helpful insofar as I could articulate it, but it felt very cerebral. Like it wasn't necessarily a somatic, you talk about this like bottom up versus top down kind of approach. And so psychedelics for me have been the most useful MDMA in particular, talked about MDMA on the show before I have settled on, and we'll, we'll get to this when we talk about psychedelics, but microdosing with psilocybin, I find very gentle and very effective as, and it takes a longer time. Like it's not as, as intensive a session, but it's a gentle way for me to explore tension and restriction in, in my body, because I know that a score of five is going to put me at an increased risk, risk for uh, not just autoimmunity, but all of the all of the things: cardiovascular disease, you know, diabetes, cancers, stroke. You know, like the big the big four that sort of come after after many of us. So that's those are some of the healing practices that I that I have. I think also just very transparently having a a partner who is able to make me feel safe and to have a container for me, you know, when I am activated, because I still can be activated in my, if he says something or does something, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's leaving or there, well, I guess we're getting a divorce. I guess he's just over me now, you know, or something, you know, you know, for him to give me space to sort of be myself and love me unconditionally based on, you know, whatever it is that I'm, that I'm going through at the time. So I think my social constructs, like my, my relationship with my husband and you know, the friends that I have that I can talk about difficult subjects with also help me quite a bit. I feel connected. I feel heard. I feel seen all of the, all of the general things. I think that many humans, most of us want, we want to feel heard and understood and we want to feel seen and loved for, you know, our, our bright sparkly bits and our shadowy, you know, our, you know, our, you know, I've sort of imagined like a Shrek type of character. You know? like, <laughs> we have, like we have like our light and sparkly bits. And then we have our sort of like, you know, gremlin, but love for all of us, for all of, for all of who we are. What a beautiful articulation of this arc that you've been on. It's, you know, you and I have been connected for many years and when I learned about this, about your vulnerability with an A score of five, it makes me misty because I feel like you and I have been on these parallel tracks yeah. Yeah. where 
you know, my ACE score is six. I had one psychologist who said I was a seven. So whatever, it's elevated. And it puts me at, you know, very much the same risk as you in terms of cardiovascular disease, stroke, autoimmune disease, alcohol use disorder, et cetera. And I don't, I don't want to live my life in an unconscious way. I want to be in those healing states of consciousness. I want to show up and be the best possible mirror for my kids, for yeah. my relationships, for my partner. And there's a way that having any score of five or six or seven, there's kind of two paths. There's the I'm not good enough low self-esteem. And then there's another path, which is extremely self-reliant. And I think the extreme self-reliant, kind of the hyper-independent, especially when you superimpose that on a female, a bright female, it just leads to this process of creating great things in the world, right? Being mission-based, being an entrepreneur, being so creative and wanting to kind of get your message out into the world, but often it's with a cost. You know, like the low heart rate variability or the ways that maybe this residue is showing up in a relationship that needs to be addressed and needs to be cleared. The other point she made, which I think is really critical, is that the parts of the brain that survived that A score of five or six or seven are different than the parts of the brain that talk therapy addresses. So there's this cognitive understanding of what happened to you and the trauma that you experienced. And I spent decades in psychotherapy talking these things through, never found them to be helpful. Yeah. And it's so painful because, you know, I, I love to talk about informed consent. I think we need informed consent for hormone therapy. We need it for birth control pills. And we definitely need it for psychotherapy, for talk therapy. And fortunately, talk therapy has become more trauma-informed. But the kind of talk therapy that I did, and I imagine you did, I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. I, you know, it took so much time. And if I had informed consent that I had about a, you know, 30% effectiveness rate, with talk therapy for my trauma, I don't know that I would have signed up for it. <laughs> right? Same. Yeah. What a waste yeah. of time and money. Like I yeah. could have, you know, we didn't know then back when I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s and then couples therapy for another couple decades. We didn't know then that MDMA assisted therapy was more than twice as effective as talk therapy for resolving trauma. Oh, it we was also vilified. I was petrified. And it was vilified. The first, the first time I did MDMA, I, it took me half an hour to take the, I was so petrified because I don't do drugs. I'm not, I'm like, I'm a good girl. I don't, this is not something that I participate in. And they were just very gentle. Like I had the best facilitators, but I sort of had like the maps, kind of like two sitters and all of that sort of, you know, emulating what they're, what they're studying at maps. And it was hard. It was hard to get over that. I'm not a, this is, uh, this is ecstasy. I'm about to take Molly. This is the thing that, you know, they're doing at the raves. Like, that's not who I am. I'm a, I'm an academic. Like, this is, you know, I'm a smart person. Why am I doing this? It took me a long time to get out, like just that mental leap. There was a bit of a, a vastness that I didn't know was there that I had to, that I had to cross. So I want to, I want to slow down here for a moment 
Stephanie, because this is, I think, such a important relational moment for our listeners and viewers. There's a lot of people who maybe feel the way that you and I felt that I grew up totally square, didn't smoke pot, certainly wasn't taking ecstasy at raves. I was in the library, right? Like that's that's where I hung out through most of my 20s. And so it wasn't until I was in my 50s that I took that leap of faith and I started to see the literature on resolving trauma with MDMA-assisted therapy, with LSD-assisted therapy, with ketamine-assisted therapy, with psilocybin-assisted therapy. And that combined with some trauma in my family of origin, a big fight with one of my siblings, that got me to say, okay, even though, you know, I was part of the Nancy Reagan era of just say no to drugs, I decided to take that leap. An average person breathes 17,000 liters of air per day, making air quality crucial for better sleep, hormone production, and immune function. Indoor air is often five times more polluted than outside air. There's mold, there's pet dander, there's toxins, allergens, and even the sprays that you use to clean your home. It can all get into your lungs. After the wildfires last year and watching the air quality in my city plummet, I decided to do something about it. I decided on the Jasper Air Purifier because this company specializes in air quality and is the premier air filter for dental and medical offices. I have one in my main floor in my kitchen, and I just bought another one to put upstairs where the family sleeps at night. Jasper covers about 1,600 square feet and automatically adjusts how much purifying is needed based on the quality of the current air. It is quiet, it's beautiful looking, and blends into our modern decor. Get better sleep tonight by heading over to jasper.co forward slash better. That's J-A-S-P-R dot C-O forward slash better to get 10% off of your Jasper unit today. What got you to take that leap? I wish I could, I, it was my, I wish I could say it was my intuition. It was just all of the, the interest that I had in Rick Doblin's work. And I was like, this is really interesting and was introduced to some therapists that were, that were doing it and they were replicating, they were trying to replicate the same situation, like the same set and setting and intention. And there was lots of meetings before the the ceremony. It wasn't just, hey, we're just going to pop in and, you know, dance around. It was like they wanted to understand who I was and what I was looking to get out of the therapy, a little bit about my history. And so for me, it was, I was sick of, I think I was at my own wits end with having some of the, like dealing with some of the anxiety that I was having, the toxic stress that you talk about, feeling bored. You know, you mentioned in the book, like I always felt bored if something wasn't happening. And I had Nicole LaPera on the show and I remember telling her, like, sometimes I would just send like a little text. You know, if I was like, if I was a little bit agitated at my partner, I would just send something, you know, like just how's he going to react to this, you know? And so I would do, I would create drama in, because I think I was actually addicted to that neurochemical cascade of the cortisol and the, you know, and like my heart pumping and all of the, you know, the adrenaline, the noradrenaline, you know, that big stress cascade that happens when you're about to get into a big fight, because that's kind of how I grew up. So you sort of, even though you know that it's a dysfunctional pattern, you seek to consciously or unconsciously recreate it in adulthood. So I was sick personally of that, that pattern 
coming up over and over again in, in my life. And just reading all of the things that Doblin was doing, I was like, this, I'm, I have to try this. Cause I had, like you, tried talk therapy, felt like I was, I felt like, I was like, I feel like I'm doing something. Is something happening? Like I did just speak with someone for an hour. You know? So sort of waiting for the transformation. And then other times with talk therapy, I felt like I had sort of opened Pandora's box. And then it was like, well, we're at 48 minutes now. We'll just like wrap this up and we'll see you. We'll see you next week. And then I didn't know, I didn't have the skill set to deal with the emotional, like everything that I had sort of opened up. I also felt like I didn't have the skill set to deal with it. So it would throw me off. It, It would you know, it would, it would disrupt my workflow. It would disrupt my day, my sometimes several days in, in, in a row. So what I felt at least from the MDMA was just, it took, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. For me, it was work. It wasn't ecstasy in any, it I just worked for six hours. It was just like physical shaking. Like I was just shaking. I was exhausted. I was sore the next day. It was like, it was a workout. I worked W E R K. I worked and I I've done it now four times. And I think the last time I did it was gosh, pre pandemic. Yeah. I think pre pandemic last time I've, I've done it last time I did it. And each time I worked and at the last sort of, you know, the 11th hour on the last session that I did, I sort of felt like I spoke to the divine feminine, like there was this like sparkles and the gold and the pink swirls. And that voice was like, you're okay. You're not behind. You're everything you're doing is you're not behind. You're not ahead. You're exactly where you should be. You're doing great. You're worthy. You're totally lovable. You know, all of these things that I in the past, and let's be honest, still do struggle with in a way, like, am I is it good enough? Is it, is this podcast, is it delivering enough value? Am I being a good enough wife, a good enough mother? All these questions always are ruminating somewhere, but the, but that, but those sessions really did help dial down the intensity of that. And it allowed me to have more empathy for, and we'll talk about what, you know, entheogen or empathogen is, but it allowed me to have more forgiveness perspective, you know, love for myself, for that little like baby Steffi who had to endure what she had to endure and develop the strategies that she had to do with the limited life experience that she had to have more love for that young girl than, than versus trying to run away from her versus trying to lock her in my dungeon and never talk to her. Good stuff. Really Gosh, good I'll, stuff. I'll set, tell me where I need to send the bill, Sarah. Like this. <laughs> the bill is we're going to do a cold plunge together. We're yeah. going to lift heavy. And then we're going to have a great like protein snack afterwards. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. the bill. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned so many great things there, Stephanie, that I want to highlight and generalize for our audience. You know, the you talked about Rick Doplin. I think he's... You know, he's got a team, but he's a solitary figure and leader to get MDMA FDA approved in the United States for trauma, for post-traumatic stress disorder. And he's had this single-minded determination that has moved mountains and has taken X and Molly, this drug that was, it became legal to have it to the point now where we suspect the FDA is going to approve it for this indication. 
He chose specifically post-traumatic stress disorder because the treatment is so poor. It's such a common condition that people face. And, you know, if you look at that efficacy of 30% with talk therapy, kind of the best case scenario, or you combine it with a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor that you have to take every single day, same efficacy, you know, right around like one in three gets better. And then he he's really crafted this model of how to get the phase two, phase three research studies done. He's published now two phase three studies, one in severe PTSD with mostly a white population. Of course, there's lots of biases when we do research. And then a second phase three that was just published a couple months ago, looking at people with moderate to severe PTSD in a more racially diverse, like 50% non-white population. So really important. And we should mention at the time that we're recording this podcast, it's not FDA approved. It's a breakthrough therapy that's used mostly in a research setting. And when you and I talk about MDA, MDMA-assisted therapy, we're mostly talking about the underground and the the ways that we've done, we've maybe modeled it based on the way that Rick's organization MAPS has developed a protocol for using MDMA. I've done it probably about 14, 15 times. I started about four years ago. My most recent time was about a month ago. And I've got a psychologist that I work with who gives MDMA until the trauma is cleared. So that's his approach. He also uses it for leadership coaching. He uses it for visioning, especially with business partners or with romantic partners. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can use this particular medication that I think holds a lot of promise. And it's such a huge shift when we think about pharmaceuticals. You know, if you think about the the veteran who goes to the VA, the Veterans Administration in the United States. I'm sorry, I don't know the equivalent in Canada. You'll have to fill me in. But if you think about a veteran who's got post-traumatic stress disorder, man or woman, who then gets treated according to the typical protocol, which is you get started on a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. There's three that are FDA approved for PTSD. You combine that with kind of the limited talk therapy that you can get within the VA system. You get this efficacy of about 30%. That's a lot of people suffering still with PTSD. Whereas if you completely change the model and you put someone through a MAPS protocol, which they're now doing with more veterans because the the VA wants to make sure that this really works for veterans before they agree to use it. It's a medicine that you take one day. You do a total of three sessions. You have prep sessions and integration sessions afterwards. So you're not taking a drug every day. You have this one immersive experience with the medicine. You get treated three times, and then the durability of the the relief of trauma that we see in the latest study is 71% no longer met criteria for PTSD after being treated with the MAPS protocol. The durability is that it lasts for a long period of time. So you're not taking medicines every day. That is a huge paradigm shift when it comes to treatment for trauma and also just the way that we interact with these medications that we have. 
So we've been talking a little bit about uh, MDMA. There are some other uh, therapies that you explore uh, in the book. Psilocybin, which we sort of wrapped up in in the psychedelics, we'll say. And we can talk a little bit about um, psilocybin as well. I wanted to talk a little bit about EMDR because that's something I personally haven't done. Our mutual friend, Danielle Laporte, she is a big advocate for it. Her and I, when, you know, when we're texting, she's like, you have to, this is the therapist you have to go to. She's the best, you know, et cetera. So talk a little bit about EMDR. Have you tried it? Do you, what do you see in clinical practice if you have patients who have experienced it? And maybe we can just define, maybe just let's define what it is and then how the mechanism of action is purported to work. Sure. So EMDR is one of those somatic-based therapies that has been used to help resolve trauma. And so I talk about it a little bit in my book because I think it's really critical that we are treating trauma bottom up. So instead of top down, kind of with our cognition, the way that we do in talk therapy, we want to be working with the brainstem. We want to be working with the part of the brain that's involved in trauma and creating a, a layer of safety and working bottom up. So EMDR is one of those somatic therapies. There's many of them. There's somatic experiencing. And when you were talking about your shaking when you were on MDMA, that immediately makes me think of somatic experience and the the work of Peter Levine and how animals in the wild, you know, a zebra after it's chased by a lion and it gets away successfully, it shakes to kind of release that trauma that it just experienced. Sounds like you had a bit of that on MDMA as you were releasing trauma. There's also Hakomi, which is something that I'm certified in, which is a mindfulness-based somatic therapy that is very bottom-up. It's kind of based on what are you experiencing in the body? How does that map to missing nourishment that you might have not gotten as young Steffi? And then EMDR, I've received it, so I've been on the receiving end of it, and I'm not sure if it was helpful for me. So one, I don't want to knock EMDR, because I've got lots of patients who swear by it, who feel like it was transformative and really made a difference for them. And as someone who practices precision medicine, I'm really fascinated by how do we personalize? Like, how do we find the person like Danielle, who gets such a great response from a therapy like EMDR, versus someone like me who didn't get much of a response? You know, is it the practitioner? Is it my particular genes and how they interact with the environment. You know, for me, it was more of a waste of money. Or maybe not, because it's good for me to know that it doesn't work for me. But that kind of personalization, I think, is really critical. And we're not yeah. yet at that stage. So EMDR, eye movement, desensitization. I forget what the R is. Re reprocessing. And we, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Like a collective effort to try to yeah. <laughs> get some of these acronyms. ACTH. God, can we just stay at ACTH? Do we have to say the whole thing? <laughs> right. I haven't said the whole thing, uh, I yeah. don't know, five years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, EMDR, I've seen a few different camps. I've seen the people like Danielle who do really well. I've seen people like me who are like, Meh, I'm not sure if it had an effect. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen some people who, after an MDMA-assisted therapy session, had some destabilization with EMDR. So, you know, just because we're talking about some of these therapies and they're bottom-up and somatic doesn't mean that they're not without risk. And so 
I think it's one of the therapies to consider. And I wish we knew more about, you know, trying to figure out who's going to benefit the most from it. So I think it's it's worth trying. And I, I think that some of it probably does vary depending on the quality, the caliber of the clinician. Sounds like Danielle's got someone in a Rolodex that maybe I should try. There's a woman that I adore named Ariel Schwartz, who was one of my faculty members. I've gone through three certifications for psychedelic-assisted therapy, for psychedelic-assisted treatment, because I'm not a therapist, I'm a physician. And she was one of the faculty members who really helped us with understanding, for instance, window of tolerance for the client who's in front of us. How do we get the person who's that we're working with to heal within their window of tolerance? How do we notice, especially for someone with a trauma history, when they start to go beyond their window of tolerance? Because my my process, before I started doing this work, and I'm curious if, if you've done this too, Stephanie, is that I would get out of my window of tolerance all the time. I had no, I call it my internal GPS. I had no idea when I was about to burn out. I would just fall over and burn out. Totally, just like yeah. crash. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like no warning light. Mm-hmm. And I I just was so used to going past my window of tolerance that it was, it was almost like the set point, kind of like yeah. with the cortisol and the drama. Yeah. And so I had to really learn. In fact, I use wearables like the Wura so that I can look at my window of tolerance, my heart rate variability, my resting heart rate, my continuous glucose, all these different things that can measure dysregulation in your body. And then you can work to stay within your window of tolerance because what I would do is dissociate. I was really effective. And I see you nodding your head, so I wonder if you do this too. So I would dissociate, right? I would, when I was in a crisis whether it was a you know a woman with a ruptured ectopic in the emergency room and I had to go save her life before she bled out. And then I also had a crash C-section at the same time up in labor and delivery, and I had to be in two places at once. So dealing with a stress like that, going past my window of tolerance, I would just go cognitive. I would just go upstairs. I would ignore the rest of my body, didn't need to use the bathroom, didn't need to sleep, didn't need to you know, kind of tune into anything other than my cognitive process and how that was talking to my hands and my feet. So I call that functional dissociation, just like there's kind of functional alcohol use disorder or functional post-traumatic stress disorder. I would functionally dissociate. Is that something you used to do? Yes, (laughs) it was. It was just punch it out. You just got to do it. Don't worry. I, I, that was literally what I would say to myself. I was like, you just got to punch this out right now. This is, it has to happen right now. That's right. And so no matter how I was feeling, that was sort of the, you know, the person that was steering the boat. It was like, you just got to punch it out. It doesn't matter that you want to go to sleep. It doesn't matter that you feel scared. It doesn't matter. You just have to do, this is what you have to do right now. And it has to get done right now. So I would as you were saying, disassociate from my body, very cerebral. I sort of half jokingly say like I would just reside like above the throat and my body was just like a mechanism for me to bring my brain around to where I wanted to go. It was just like an Uber driver for my brain. And that's, you know, and I would, I would, I was so disconnected from, you know, as a woman, we we can, you know, maybe this is a little off topic, but I was so disconnected from my hips. I know that that's a little bit of an off, a, a bit of an off 
the cuff statement, but I felt completely disassociated from my womb space, from just my pelvis in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, this, yeah. this is totally on topic, right? Because women do this. Women do it as a way of surviving patriarchy. Women do it as a way of kind of scanning the the toxic stress in our environment, the misogyny that gets directed towards us. And it feels better to go upstairs above the throat and to use our cerebral gifts as a way of managing what we're facing. And I certainly did that for my first 50 years. And then you start doing psychedelic assisted therapy and you can no longer dissociate. You start to feel all the feelings. You start to notice the patriarchy more. You start to think more about, okay, if I'm not going to be dissociated, I need to find ways to buffer myself to stay within that window of tolerance and also to solve this damn problem that we're facing <laughs> so that more women and our daughters and you know all the, the women behind us don't have to suffer like us, don't have to dissociate as a response to a traumatic environment that we're just bathing in right now. And I think that it's important, as you were talking, I was like, oh, I, I want to also maybe just share my, I was, I was worried that not being stressed out was going to take away my edge. You know, I always felt like I live on the stress. This is what helps me get things done. This is, if you take the stress away from me, I am going to be now not productive. I'm just going to be a sloth on the couch and I'm never going to do anything again. That was like my fear. And it was a real, I know it sounds ridiculous when I articulated, but that is, was absolutely 100% real for me. And you were, you know, as you were, as you were saying, you know, we have to help our daughters and, and our friends and our mothers and, you know, the women that have come before us and honor them and the women that will come after us. I think it's important to maybe say that, and I, I can say it, from my, from my own experience, unhitching the stress or living in that toxic stress that we've been talking about did, if anything, it made me more productive because I can now rest and recuperate, which is a form of productivity, which took me a long time to learn that rest is actually very productive. It actually makes me, when I shut off, when I move away from the work or I you know, put, put away the phone or put away the laptop and I spend quality time in nature with my kids, with the people that I love. I'm actually way more productive hour for hour when I come back to work. So there's an unhitching from that toxic cascade of stress that we've been talking about, but it makes you stronger. Yes. It, it just in a different way, you're solving the problem in a, in a way that honors your physiology and it's not so cerebral. You're not just trying to like punch, punch it out. You're just not trying to like push through it, but you're, you're rather, you're rolling with it in a different way. There's a bit more of a softness. Maybe there's a bit more of a softness to the way that you, that you problem solve. Beautifully stated. Yeah. I love how you just busted another myth. You know, this myth that we've got to have this, high level of stress to be our most productive. I would say that's a basic message of patriarchy. It's one that we no longer have to live under anymore. So unhitching from it, I think is critical. And then learning the personal ways that you're able to 
restore, that you're able to fully recover, to rest as you described. That's so important. You know, I want to challenge our listeners and viewers to come up with their own list of what that looks like. And, you know, before we hit the record button, we were talking about cold plunges and other forms of hormesis that can help with recovery. And I was saying, you know, I have to be with my girlfriends to do a cold plunge because it just feels so stressful to me. But there's other ways that you can recover and restore. Orgasm is a good example. Sacred sexuality. You know, there's the female body especially is just designed to be this instrument of pleasure. And I think a lot of us run around dissociated, not using all of those pathways that we have that could be leveraged to be able to restore, to be able to rest, to be able to, you know, bring our best self forward. And as you described, productivity is a lovely downstream benefit of that. This is for, you know, in the context of autoimmunity, there are certain moments or time periods in a woman's life where she's a bit more exquisitely sensitive to developing autoimmunity. You talk about in the book, pregnancy being one time where we are more vulnerable with the physical and chemical and emotional stressors that come with bearing children. And perimenopause is another one. Our friend, mutual friend, Dr. Lisa Mosconi, I was telling you about her sort of the way that she sort of frames up like puberty and perime- puberty and pregnancy and perimenopause, there's always celebrations for the first two, but not the last one. So we're always celebrating, oh, you got your period and oh, you're pregnant. Oh, let's have a baby shower. And then perimenopause is like, oh, you're just, you're getting old. Like just go, go away in the corner and age on your own, age by yeah, yourself. Go, so we don't have to see disappear. it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so we were, I want to just bring up this question around stress management. I think that perimenopause and menopause, at least for the women that I've seen, this is the time where it is crucially important to master stress, well, stress management. Like we have to be able to appropriately respond to both our internal and our external environment. And in some ways, perimenopause, I think you said it, I don't know if you said it on the show or before we started get before we got going with the record button it's this energetic portal it's this transition it's this beautiful opportunity so i'd love for you to just expand on that uh, a little bit because the way that you said it was so so wonderful and i know it's going to really i I think it's going to really hit hard with our with our listeners taking care of your health isn't always easy but at least it should be simple that's why for the last five years i have been drinking ag1 every day no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in with water once a day, and it makes me feel energized, nourished, and ready to take on my workout. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It is a powerfully healthy habit that is also powerfully simple. If there's one product that I had to recommend to elevate your health, being a supplement minimalist myself, It would be AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long and why they have been a sponsor of the podcast for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2, as well as five free AG1 travel packs, which are a life send when you are on the road. With your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash Stephanie, that's D-R-I-N-K-A-G, the number one dot com forward slash Stephanie. Check it out. Harry menopause is an initiation. It's a shamanic initiation if you're someone who follows shamanism. A lot of people see it as 
you know, I see so many women over the age of 40 who feel like, oh, I'm no longer invincible. This is kind of the beginning of the end. It's downhill from here. And that's the wrong way to hold the initiation of perimenopause and menopause. I just taught a retreat last month where we talked about perimenopause as initiation, how it's this biochemical forcing function. And yes, there's more than 100 symptoms. There's the moodiness, the brain fog, the depression, anxiety, the hot flashes, night sweats, osteoporosis, osteopenia, blah, blah, blah. There's a very long list. But when you shift from the concept that you're a victim and all of these symptoms are kind of washing over you and you're just trying to, you know, like whack-a-mole, trying to get the symptoms to resolve and treat the symptoms, if you instead look at it as this concept that we're spiritual beings having a human experience and there's something that's being taught to us, there's a message that needs to be decoded that we're experiencing, whether that's an increase in anxiety and you start waking up at four o'clock in the morning, ruminating and you can't go back to sleep. There's some missing nourishment that needs to be addressed. And when you hold your symptoms in that way, I think it, it can change everything. So certainly I believe that perimenopause and menopause for most of us is a call to the divine. It's a call to connect to inner divinity. A lot of people think it's a, the call is, should I take bioidentical hormones, yes or no? And certainly that's, that's part of the question. Are you a good candidate for that? And if so, what dose and what duration and what's the right timing? But I feel like when you look at this deeper question of how the divine is operating in your life and your connection, your ability to slow down enough to listen, your ability to you know, do this kind of bottom-up process of being in your body and feeling the connection to inner divinity, that's what really changes everything. And, you know, one of the obstacles is trauma. If you're someone who's got significant trauma as a child, as an adult, both, it can often obscure that messaging from the divine. And Lisa Moscone, I saw her last week, I went to New York and did brain scans. I love being part of her women's brain initiative studies. You know, she found that 80% of women over the age of 40 have a slowdown of their brain energy driven by mitochondria. And that 80% of women over the age of 40 who've got this thing called cerebral hypometabolism or brain slowdown, they're the ones who have all the symptoms, the hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, anxiety insomnia. So to me, I don't think the solution is to go on a ketogenic diet or to, you know, to start using an estrogen patch and micronized progesterone. I think that might be part of the solution, but I think we've got to look deeper at the root cause of these symptoms and also bring this this broader view of how your physiology is interacting with your spirit to be able to come up with a solution that's really sustainable and that works for you. I've heard many wise women talk about this idea that we are often spiritually sick, 
years before we are physically sick, that this physical manifestation, and it might be the hot flashes, it might be the brain fog, it might be the in the mood alterations, the sleep, perturbations, all of the things that we've been talking about are just the bot, like you've been made potentially spiritually sick for a while. So this unresolved trauma that we've been talking about, not being able to maybe not fully metabolize, maybe you don't need to fully metabolize it, but maybe we just need to begin to address it and understand the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of how it has shaped our lives. So in, you know, in many cases, like, you know, I told you a score of a five, there are many things from that, certainly that were very painful and were very difficult to navigate. And there's also positive things that have come from it as well. So can we have a holistic, vitalistic, potentially viewpoint of of our past experiences, how they have served us, how they have not served us, how that residue might still be in our present day, there's many, you know, you talked about the different parts of the brain. There's some parts of the brain that don't actually, they're not really great with time. So you might, you know, the incident that in question where you interpreted the scenario or the situation as traumatic might've been 20 years ago. And it just seems like it was, it just, it was just now, it was just, just this morning, just yesterday. Like there's no, that sort of understanding of time in certain parts of the brain are not as well established as others. Right. So this is, and this is how some of that trauma, that hypervigilance or, you know, for speaking of, uh, I don't know if this happened to you, I'll just share this and see how it lands. I had to stop going to movies for several years because sometimes when there was like a tense scene or like the music would stop and you knew something was going to happen, I would jump. There was a star, what star, it was a star Wars movie. And like, there was a scene where everything got quiet. And then there was like a loud bang. It was star Wars. So we know it's not a real thing. I jumped out of, I was like a cat on the ceiling. Like I was out of my skin. And so that's an example of like, you know, primitive reflex being retained, like the Moreau, like I still had that sort of Moreau reflex, which is just geek speak for, you know, I was, I had this like startle reflex. Yeah. I had this like very accentuated startle reflex, but spiritually sick, right? Spiritually sick for a long time, showing up as a retained primitive reflex, we can say, you know, just something to, I don't know how that lands with you, but I've, I've heard many women talk about that and that feels right. It feels right that our soul, you know, you said how our soul integrates with our physiology and that feels right. That's, that seems like if our soul, if everything is not right with our soul, that entity, that which makes us, you know, us is going to continue to speak to us in different dimensions until we pay attention to it. And the physical is often the last one. It's like, listen, you're going to get hot flashes and you're not going to speak and you're not going to sleep until, until you pay attention to it's such a good point. It lands on a lot of levels. And I feel like I should say, yes, pay attention to your spirit and pay attention to your physiology. Like both yeah. are important. Yeah. You know, I take I take estrogen, I take progesterone, I take testosterone. I'm not saying, you know, don't treat your symptoms. But I think when you take this bigger view, it really helps with trying to decode the symptoms and trying to understand, okay, say you're, you know, 45 and your periods are starting to sputter and they're every 22 days instead of every 28 days. You've got less progesterone on board. You might notice that you've got more anxiety symptoms because the estrogen receptor alpha is getting more stimulated than estrogen receptor beta. And then you superimpose on that 
a trauma history, you know, maybe something that you've been dissociated with from for a long time, it can worsen the symptoms. We know that. And so I'm not saying only treat your trauma. I'm saying, let's look at the bigger picture, like treat the symptoms, get to the root cause, but also do an inventory, like check and see where you are. We were talking about cortisol earlier and, you know, this embedded stress response that leads to, you know, like the startle response that you were talking about when you were watching the Star Wars movie. One of the things I've noticed is that I'm highly sensitive. I'm a highly sensitive person. And I knew about HSPs. You know, I always tried to write my books in a way that would be inclusive of people who are HSPs. We know that about 80% of the people in talk therapy are HSPs, even though they're only about 20% of the population. And once you start to pay attention to this, once you realize that you're highly sensitive to your environment and you can get overstimulated so easily, things start to really make sense, especially when you can then look at the gift of your sensitivity. So I imagine about 20% of our listeners or viewers are highly sensitive. You can go to Elaine Aaron's website and see if you meet criteria for being highly sensitive. But knowing this about myself, I can see how I was overstimulated for so many decades. I was overstimulated in my relationships. And now that I know this about myself, when I go to Burning Man, I just manage it a little differently than I would otherwise. When I, you know, I, I've been diagnosed with ADD. ADD is often a trauma response and sort of this hypersensitivity response. So there are ways that trauma, you have a normal reaction to the trauma of childhood by becoming more sensitive. You need to. You need to kind of tune in and, and kind of see what's safe in order to protect yourself. It's a normal evolutionary process. And so acknowledging that, and then this other point that she made that I think is critical is that and this is a little more edgy. I'm so grateful for my trauma. I am yeah. so grateful. Me too. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would be able to write the books that I write. I don't think I would be able to tune into healing of others without the trauma that I experienced. So it was part of the architecture of my contract in this life. And I am so grateful for it. And I realize that there are some people who will hear that and just be like, what the hell is she talking about? What kind of woke, you know, BS is that? But I really feel like it's been an incredible gift. Incredible gift, especially when you can have this experience of resolving trauma and and know, knowing what it was like pre-post, you know, sort of before and after makes a huge difference. And there's so you know, many gifts. Yeah, sorry. So many Go gifts. On. And yeah. it's, you know, I'll say one other quick thing, which is, we know that autoimmunity is hugely increasing around the world. And one of the things that I measured in my 40s was that I had really high anti-nuclear antibodies. So I was making antibodies to the nucleus of my cells. We know that anti-nuclear antibodies are on the rise, like especially over the past 25 years. There's certain groups that are rising ahead of others, and that includes men. It includes adolescents. And 
I had this really high anti-nuclear antibody. I went through this trauma-assisted therapy, um, psychedelic-assisted therapy with MDMA and some other things, and now my anti-nuclear antibody test is negative. Now, that's anecdotal information, but it's an example of how trauma can live on in your psychoimmune neuroendocrine or pine network, and it's possible to clear it. It's possible to resolve it and potentially some of the consequences of that trauma in your system, the rest of Yeah, I love, I love the end of one. And I think that as we amalgamate more case studies, as we amalgamate more end of ones, it will allow for more exploration and, you know, we often sort of rank quality of evidence, like, you know, the case study, the lowly case study, and then we sort of move up the rank up to the, you know, the meta-analysis of the RCTs, right? But I think that I think that lack of, and you said this a, a couple of times in the book, which I really liked, is like lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. It's just that we're not there yet. You know, we're not we're not quite, you know, we have more questions about autoimmunity than we have answers. And I think that if we have enough individuals with stories, like you've just, <clears throat> pardon me, like, like you've just detailed, ANAs are now, you know, your anti-nuclear antibodies are now negative, and we can amalgamate more and more evidence. Well, that becomes like the weight of the evidence is going to, of course, direct future research, which is really exciting as well. So let's let, la- we've been talking, we, so we're, you know, we've been talking about the, you know, the, our souls and, you know, the contracts that we have in this life. And I think for some people that might be intangible, potentially. Let's give a couple of tangibles in terms of lab tests. So again, understanding that Hashimoto's is going to have its own specific cluster. There's certain things that we're going to look for. Rheumatoid, we might see rheumatoid factors you mentioned, but there are, it seems like there are through lines of lab blood markers that may go awry in the vast majority of uh, classic autoimmunity. Can you talk a little bit about erythrocyte sedimentation rate, C-reactive protein, some of these inflammatory markers. What are, we, what are we looking for that we want to monitor over time? Those measures of inflammation that you just mentioned, I think, are part of a basic panel. So looking at C-reactive protein, high sensitivity of C-reactive protein, looking at erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or ESR. ESR is one of those tests that when I went through my medical training, people were like, oh, it's so nonspecific. It's kind of a ridiculous test to order, but it can indicate increased inflammatory tone. So what is inflammation? Inflammation is the immune system that is chronically activated. So if you get a splinter in your finger or a cut in your finger, your immune system jumps in. You've got this increased inflammation, and it's really meant to last somewhere around three to four days, not for weeks, for months, for years. And so these are some of the indicators of an immune system that are that's overactivated. Another one that I like is the neutrophil lymphocyte ratio. So if mm-hmm. you get a complete blood count with a differential, you can look at the absolute or relative numbers of neutrophils divided by lymphocytes. And ideally, you want that less than one Often with autoimmune disease, it's elevated. There's other causes of inflammation too besides autoimmunity. I also like to look at DHEA. I like to look at a couple of hormones. So DHEAS, I I don't know if I've seen a single patient with autoimmune disease who doesn't have a DHEA that's less than 100. It's a really important immunomodulator. Vitamin D is another one. You cannot heal leaky gut with a low vitamin D. You just can't. 
It's so critical to the integrity of your gut lining. So there's some additional antibody tests that I find to be helpful that I talk about in the book. You mentioned some of them. We talked about, you know, thyroid peroxidase antibodies and Hashimoto's rheumatoid factor, anti-CCP. There's lots of different antibodies that you can measure. And I consider those more advanced tests. And then you want to do, of course, the laboratory testing together with a, a history and a physical exam with someone who knows what they're doing. And this is where I tend to prefer someone who's got some functional training because they're looking at root cause. They're not just trying to fit you into a diagnostic system because people with autoimmune disease on average wait four to seven years for a correct diagnosis. They see four to six doctors before they get a correct diagnosis. And so that's where laboratory testing finding the right clinician to partner with and collaborate with can really make a difference. I also feel like the interventions, it's been at least my clinical experience, when you have someone with Hashimoto's, for example, you can, you cannot send them to the gym and have them destroy their glutes for two hours. Like they are not going to recover. Uh, you do have to have some, there has to be a little bit of Again, that softness, a little bit more gentle. You want to stimulate, you don't want to annihilate, right? So, you know, you go to the gym and you have, maybe there's a a light full body workout as you are, because again, it's a stressor when we think about, you know, if you were to just, Lane Norton does this well. He's like, if I were to describe exercise to you, you would never touch it. It's like your blood pressure goes up, your, you know, your... All your cholesterol, your lipids go up, all these different heart arrhythmias, all these terrible things happen to you acutely while you're exercising. But you also have to remember that someone with Hashimoto's, let's say, or just a general, you know, multi, I've had a lot of, a lot of patients with MS, a lot of patients with Hashis. You need to be, the, the interventions need to be gentler and we have to have a much more flexible timeline for them and expect that there's going to be, even though healing is nonlinear anyway, for there to be even more non in their healing. And I think a practitioner, you know, to your point, who has some experience with that and some understanding with that is you're probably going to get some better outcomes with your patient when you can understand that their, their systems generally are, you know, like the cold plunges, for example, maybe instead of staying in for eight minutes, you're in for a minute and it's a bit warmer, you know, or it's two minutes and it's like not quite two degrees or, you know, it's not quite, you know, or that's Celsius. What is it in Fahrenheit? Gosh, it would be 34, I think maybe 44. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're describing beautifully a bottom up approach as opposed to top down. Top down is, okay, I'm going to do a cold plunge. I'm going to get in there for 20 minutes. Bottom up is, okay, I'm here in the cold plunge. I can last a minute today or two minutes. And that's the the kind of feedback loop that we need to develop. It's so critical to have that kind of feedback loop that's bottom up, that is considering what's happening in the body. We're not disconnected from the body. We're not up, upstairs. We're really feeling what's what's normal and healthy and adaptive inside the body. And it's that adaptation that makes all the difference. You know, you were talking about someone with Hashimoto's destroying their their glutes in the gym. We have to adapt to what the body, you know, what is that window of tolerance for the body, not just psychologically, but physically. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which so many of us already don't have. If you've had trauma, you know, as we were saying, if you've had trauma and you're anything like myself or you, Sarah, it's like, you're just going to blow right past that. So we have to be exquisitely sensitive and maybe even putting in some guardrails that are maybe more conservative initially. And then as you, you know, as you sort of monitor your response, soreness, let's say if it's in the, in the context of weight training minutes in the cold plunge, let's say you, you will adapt. It's just not necessarily going to be on the schedule that your ego wants it to be on. So we totally. just have to, we totally. just have to, even without an autoimmune, you know, I, I'm like, where are my glutes? Like I would like more of them. I've been working you know, even without an autoimmune condition. You know, it's like my shoulder is still overhead pressing the same damn weight that I was four months ago. Like when's the progress happening? So you have to still understand that you're going to have those let's say psychological defaults where you want to progress, 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 but it's slow, sl- much slower than you would like. And the, the timeline is going to be much longer as well. That's right. I mean, muscle building is slow, especially after 40, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Those centimeters and inches, unfortunately, right. you know? Yeah. Well, I'm just looking at the time and somehow we've flown by, flown by the time we've had together. It's this book is really, really awesome and deserves to be on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm just going to call it now. I hope that it is. Where can people find, it's like any good bookstores, where can people interact with you? I know you're on, you've been, you've been like your Instagram game. I have to say, <laughs> I really love digging what you're putting on Instagram. So tell people where they can find you, interact with you and the book. I appreciate that. I love watching your reels on Instagram. Just was watching your cold plunge earlier this morning. So Instagram is the place where I hang out the most. I just have a lot of fun there. And that's at Sarah Gottfried, MD. The book can be purchased anywhere books are sold. You can one click it on Amazon. You can, you know, one thing I feel like I should mention is that I just finalized a divorce. And so I'm changing my name. I'm going back to my maiden name, which is Saul, S-Z as in zebra, A-L. It's a short name that very few people can pronounce or spell, but I am going to be switching from Sarah Gottfried to Sarah Zoll Gottfried. And then for the next book, we'll drop the Gottfried because that is my married name and the divorce papers are final. So I'm really excited for the sovereignty of that and for reclaiming this, you know, the Sarah Zoll within. I love that. And congratulations. I think it's always, it's always, I I always, I remember watching a comedian once. And of course now I can't recall who it was, but they were saying divorce is always a great thing. It's like two adults have decided, Hey, you know, we're not, you know, we're, we don't love each other or it hasn't worked out or irreconcilable differences or whatever it is. And they've gone through with it. What would be worse right? And this is like sort of how society doesn't sort of put sometimes two and two together is if two people absolutely hated each other, you know, or they, they have an absolutely dysfunctional, dysfunctional relationship for whatever reason, and they stay together, you know, for the kids or for whatever reason, because culturally they feel like they have to, like, it's always a good story. It's always a good story when, when two adults come together and say, Hey, this isn't working anymore. How can we move forward? So congratulations. I'll, Thank I'll extend you. that to you. Thank and you. I love the last, I got to say, I love Saul. It it has a regalness to it. I almost, when I first, I wanted to actually ask you, because I noticed that on the, on the paperback that it had Sarah Zoll Goffrey, it almost has like a, maybe I read it as like czar or something. It's like, you know, the the wise, you know, the (laughs) wisdom of, of, of someone from that era. So I just wanted to let you know that I noticed and, and, and now that I have the context and the color for it, that's, that's even better. 
I appreciate that. Thank you, Stephanie. Such a pleasure to be with you always. Just don't get enough of it. Oh, well, like I said, we'll, we'll hold hands and we'll cold plunge together somewhere, somewhere warm. So we'll get cold and then we'll, and then we'll go and suntan and have, you know, have some protein as you were saying, and have a great, I have a great glue workout. (laughs) Yes. I'm in. Count me in. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming today. Thank you. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 